Hi everyone, I'm Jessica. And I'm Morgan. You're listening to Suspicion. All right, we're back everyone. (laughs) Thanks for hanging in there while we took our month break. Yeah, I think it's been about a month. Yeah, We, we needed some time off and then also a lot of stuff happened personally, so... It was really nice for us to just kind of focus on other things for a little bit, but we're very excited to be back. Yes, we have been doing a lot of research on our off time. Yeah. So we have, we want to be bringing some bigger cases this season with more in-depth research, and we're really excited to get going on all of that today. So with that said, let's jump on in. Today, we are going to be covering the case of the West Memphis Three. So this is a tricky case, I think, Morg. I was thinking about this earlier because um, we're saying it's the case of the West Memphis Three, but at the heart of it, it's the case of three other boys, which is Michael Moore, Stephen Branch, and Christopher Byers. I mean, with all of cases similar to this and for anyone who doesn't know we're going to get into this a lot more in a second and (laughs) it'll make more sense um but stories when there are messy convictions yeah it makes a lot more victims um which makes it tricky for our normal kind of formula of of, storytelling of storytelling so Bear with us as we jump on in. Also, listener discretion advised. At the beginning, we will be talking a little bit in depth about the murder of three eight-year-old boys. So listen at your own discretion. On May 5th, 1993, three eight-year-old boys, Michael Moore, Stephen Branch, and Christopher Byers, went missing in West Memphis, Arkansas. When we first started this, I kept thinking Memphis, Tennessee. Me too. Um, But no, this was in Arkansas. Christopher Byers' adoptive father made a report to police at around 7 p.m. that his son had not returned home. Police heard from neighbors that the boys were seen playing together around 6.30 p.m. that night. And they also saw Terry Hobbs, Stephen Branch's stepfather, calling them home. That night, the initial police searches were small, and some neighbors did a search as well with a short visit to the location where the boys were last seen. A more thorough search began the next morning, this is May 6th, at 8 a.m., with the primary focus being on the Robin Hood Hills area. What's interesting is that the search and rescue personnel had a shoulder-to-shoulder chain through the woods. So that's exactly as you would picture it from the description. Yeah. Basically covering every inch. But they found nothing. Around 1.45 p.m. that day, a juvenile parole officer happened to see a boy's black shoe floating in a muddy creek which led to a major drainage canal in Robin Hood Hills. So here is where you're going to want to skip ahead a bit um, Uh if you think these murders will be a little too much, and they are graphic. Yes. The search of the ditch found the three boys. 
They were stripped naked, hogtied with their own shoelaces. The boys' clothing was found in the creek, and the clothes were mostly turned inside out. Two pairs of the boys' underwear were never recovered. Eventually, this led investigators to believe the boys had been raped. However, later on during investigation, expert testimony disputed this. Even though trace amounts of sperm were found on a pair of pants at the scene. Sperm DNA. So it's not sperm sperm, but sperm DNA. Smaller amounts. Interesting. Okay. Christopher Byers had the most damage done to his body with lacerations to various parts of his body and mutilation of his genital area. Later at trial, there were arguments over whether Christopher's wounds were a result of an actual human attack or if it was done post-mortem by animals. It seems like that's something that would be fairly... Easy to tell, right? Well, and wouldn't you be able to notice if it was like Bite animal marks. teeth marks or if it was a knife? Yeah. The autopsies by the forensic pathologist indicated that Christopher died of multiple injuries, while Stephen and Michael died of multiple injuries with drowning. So, yeah, their like official death was the like drowning piece that yeah. killed them. Um, But they also had many other injuries um, that, I don't know, maybe incapacitated them in the water. Oh, maybe. So, it almost seems like maybe the person who did this or the people that did this injured them. And then, because of their injuries, they drowned? Yeah. I feel like maybe they thought they were dead. Oh, maybe. And then, and they like threw them away, kind of, but it's, into the ditch. It's confusing. We'll get into more of this later. Um, but it's confusing, like where all of this happened, and like, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> Police believe the boys were assaulted and killed at the location. All right, we're getting right into it. Um, but critics argue that the assault, at least, was unlikely to have occurred at the creek, and. Yes, so one of the big places Morgan and I, we're going to put all our resources and show notes and on the website, um, and we had a lot of great sources for this one. Yeah. Um, We did, there are a lot of documentaries on this, (laughs) four to be exact. So there's three HBO documentaries on this, that's a, you know, part one, part two, part three, called Paradise Lost. Um. We watched two of them, Mm -hmm. Uh, so I definitely got some more details from that. Especially the first one. Mm -hmm. The first one goes through the crime and the trial. But actually, the second one gets into a lot of the details of evidence more. So in the second one, they have a criminal profiler come in. And he said, you know, there's no way this happened at the creek, the actual attack. Mm -hmm. Because the amount of blood that would have... Had to have been there? Yes. There's no way it could have been cleaned up. Question, question, question. Yes. 
but they were found in a ditch with water. So couldn't the water right. have... So they're saying that it happened, the attack happened next to the creek, and then the bodies were thrown in the Oh, that's creek. what police are saying? Yes. And oh. they were saying, like, oh, they just threw water up on the creek to, like, rinse the blood out. Oh, but they couldn't have done that. And, and the forensic guy was like, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's just no way you yeah. would have found blood. Okay. So that is just a confusing point where you kind of wonder. Well, because that's the place where any kind of crime happens that's where you find the most evidence. Exactly. And it's so, just... Yeah. It's a question mark in this case. Immediately suspicion... Yes! You're welcome. <laughs> turned on to three local teenagers. Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly Jr. These teens were outcasts in the town as they wore all black, had long hair, and listened to heavy metal music. Basically, people of the community believed that they were worshippers of Satan, which was a huge mark against them in this Bible Belt community. Rumors quickly spread about Satanism, ritual animal killings, and possible human sacrifice. So this isn't long after the whole satanic panic of the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the early 90s, and I think especially in communities where Catholicism or Christianity, sorry, not probably not, maybe not specifically Catholicism. Yeah. But where Christianity is like the pillar of the community. Anyone who's different is going to be feared. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And especially if they're super, super different like these boys were. Damien Eccles was seen as the ringleader with the other two boys as his loyal followers. Eccles also had a history of psychiatric problems and violent outbursts. Eventually, Jesse Miskelly Jr. even confessed, but later on at his trial, And almost immediately after his confession, people started to look at his confession as kind of off. Miss Kelly's attorney states that his client was mentally slow and was manipulated into telling the police what they wanted to hear. So to this point, he had an IQ of 72, they said, Mm -hmm. on the Paradise Lost documentary. Doing some research, I found numbers that ranged from 68 to 72. So, not a huge range, but what that actually means, I did just a quick Google search to figure out, but they call that borderline borderline impaired. Mm -hmm. Some more evidence kind of against the boys was a woman came forward saying she heard Eccles bragging about murdering those kids. And she was a big part of why police eventually went to trial for these boys, but she later recanted. When later on they were digging into the investigative procedures, it became clear that officers, attorneys, influential people in the community had immediately made up their minds about who committed this crime when the bodies were found. Most of them 
believed that they were in a satanic cult. And apparently when the bodies were found, someone on the scene said, looks like Damien finally killed someone. So immediately Damien Eccles' name was at the crime scene. Mm -hmm. And they really went forward trying to convince anybody who would listen that the boys, soon to be known as the West Memphis Three, were responsible for these murders. Jesse Miss Kelly was 17 years old, and like we talked about, he ended up confessing to the police. He admitted to witnessing the two other boys, Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin, sexually assault, beat, and murder the boys, and they did this as part of a satanic cult ritual. Like we said, uh, Christopher had suffered genital mutilation during the crimes, which made the police and the public believe that this specific part of the crime was some kind of ritual abuse. And they have all this stuff that they talk about during the trial about books that people have written where it says, like, your genitals are power and all of this stuff. And they found some of these books in Damien Eccles' home. But again, later on, they kind of figure out the genital mutilation was possibly by animals. And doesn't genital mutilation to you, like from other crimes we've listened to, either make you think of some kind of like... Rage. Sexual rage based? Yeah. Rather than like ritual. Right. And no, you're right. From everything I read, correct me if you read anything differently, but they didn't see like pentagrams crashed into no. trees or upside down crosses or anything like fire. I don't know. A- anything that would have made me think like there was some ritual happening around this. Yeah. Like, no. And no, they didn't. They didn't find any of that. And that's why later on there's another um, lawyer who comes to help uh, Jesse Meskelly's attorney from the first trial. And he immediately, when he was looking at the crime scene photos, he's like, this does not look like any kind of ritual killings. Because you're right. There's no altars, pentagrams, nothing like that. Right. The prosecution also showed abrasions in the boys' mouths and a large wound on Steve's Stephen's face that supported the stance that the boys were savagely beaten and tortured with knives by the West Memphis Three. But in actuality, it came to light years later that these wounds were possibly caused by wild animals. Also, again, it's a stretch to say that, like, there's a wound on a boy's face. Oh, that's ritualistic. So Jesse is going to be tried separately because he implicated the other boys. And the trial was moved to Corning, Arkansas with concerns about security during trial because there were lots of death threats. Jesse would actually never testify against the other boys. And I thought that was really interesting. It is because of a precedent Mm -hmm. um set oh gosh I wish I'd written down 
something called like the Burton rule or something like that, where if you're tried separately, your confession can't be used oh. against the other co-defendants. So already you don't, I don't feel like there's any kind of evidence to even put forth a trial against the other two boys because the only reason the other two boys were in vault at this point is because of Jesse's confession, right? The cases are definitely circumstantial. Yeah. All right. So tell us about why this confession was okay. not real. So point number one, I mean, like I mentioned, Jesse had a borderline impaired IQ. And so Jesse's lawyer believes that this confession was coerced. Police at one point showed Jesse a picture of one of the young boy's bodies to scare him. I mean, they didn't have any experience dealing with people with a mental handicap. And you see them say that on the stand. Also, it's like if you show a picture of a mutilated eight-year-old boy's body, anybody's going to freak out. And right. want to just leave. Right. Yeah. Which leads us to another problem that Jesse was questioned for over 12 hours without any legal representation, without any family members with him. But only the last 45 minutes of the interrogation, when he was confessing, that's mm-hmm. convenient, were actually recorded. Yeah, no, that's not right. I no. mean... And also, he's 17. Isn't the age of legal consent 18? I don't know. I think I thought you have... it can be 16. I don't know. Oh, but... It's not, but either way, I mean, if you're dealing with a 17-year-old mentally handicapped... But also, I think the police did know. Yeah. The police did of know. Of course. Also, everyone, if you're immediately brought to a police station or anything like that, ask for a lawyer... Even if you are innocent, it doesn't show that you're guilty. Just ask for a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they also, there's evidence to show, I would say, that the police were kind of feeding Jesse this confession. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for one... Jesse didn't give them any information that they didn't already have. And there's this one snippet where one um, defense expert is testifying and he kind of picks these specific parts of the interrogation where, you know, Jesse says we were in the woods in the morning with the little boys. And the police know that's not true. So they're like, oh, are you sure it was in the morning? And he goes, yes, at noon. But everyone, like there's proof, the three little boys were in school. So then the police say, was it after school? And Jesse says, yes. Then later on, when they're getting the confession, the police goes, so when you were in the woods that night, and he goes, yes, that night, blah, 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 blah. So basically, they're getting him to the correct timeline. To the point that they, yeah. But he 
doesn't really show any... Well, he doesn't come right out and say, like, oh, that night we were in the woods. He, he doesn't just, seem to know when the crimes took place, and yeah. the police are just trying to get him there. Did you ever watch that uh, show on Netflix, The Confession Tapes? No. So it's a lot about um, false confessions, and that's something that almost every single one of them have, where the police do that type of thing where if somebody says something wrong, like, oh, yeah, and we murdered him behind the house. And they say, oh, behind the living room? Yes, in the kitchen. You know, like, they use those kind of things to not outright tell them the true facts, but kind of lead them. Yes. This whole confession thing made me think of the Adnan Syed Yes, yes. With Jay yeah. and, you know, how he was kind of led into a confession. Um, so, not surprising. Yeah, it's really upsetting because, oh, can you imagine 12 hours with police hounding you? Ugh. And also, it's little boys, too. I bring this up all the time, but if you haven't watched the Netflix series, When They See Us, about... You told me not to. The Central Park Five. I didn't tell you not to. I just want you to be prepared that it's... Very upsetting. Very upsetting. Okay. But if you ever want to, like, feel the fear you would feel if you were mm-hmm. in an interrogation room with police, they really display that in that show episode one the defense attorney does point out all of these inconsistencies with the confession but investigators say he was just confused Mm -hmm. of course jesse at the end of this whole trial is convicted of a life sentence plus 40 years but jesse's defense attorney will continue to work on this case after the conviction. Mm-hmm. So then we move on to the trial of Jason and Damien. So Jason and Damien were tried together. And all of this information is from the Paradise Lost documentary. Because they filmed the entire thing. And they also got behind the scenes interviews with Jason and Damien and their lawyers. Parents of the three teenage boys of Jason Jesse and Damien believe completely in their innocence. Jason Baldwin states that he can see how people think he's in a cult because he wears Metallica shirts, which is like, I mean, come on. So makes you think of like Bible Belt South. Yeah. I mean, how many people do see on a daily basis? With Metallica shirts? Metallica, I mean... We have a tool shirt in this yeah. household. Like, yeah, and it's just, it was such a different time. Too. It was, it was. He's 16 years old and he looks like a baby. I mean, he looks so, he looks young. so young. Because he is. He is, he's 16. It's crazy. That's what one of the moms says is she's like, when those little boys were killed, our sons were boys too. Yeah, because they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Damien says that he thinks they were the obvious choice because they were outcasts and that the police needed to pin it on someone, which is what we've talked about. Mm -hmm. So 
as we kind of said at the beginning, there was a ton of rumors that were going around about this case. And especially a lot of gross rumors around Damien and Jason and Jesse and things found in their house houses, but they were all untrue. It just shows that, you know, people had made their minds up. Both Damien and Jason say that they were home with their families at the time of murder. There were a ton of random quote-unquote experts that come out at this trial. I have such a problem with quote-unquote experts. What do you mean? Because they're not experts? Well, I mean, in this case, there are definitely people who expert is a questionable title for them. Mm -hmm. But in general, like, a lot of these things are subjective. Yeah. So you have the defense attorneys putting up an expert in psychology that says one thing, and then the prosecution having having an expert, I'm doing air quotes, everyone, in psychology. And actually, I shouldn't be doing air quotes because... I do think they are experts in their field, Mm -hmm. but they just have different opinions that happen to line up with whichever side of the case that they're testifying. Well, because you're right, because it's a prosecution expert testimony, so they're going to be biased towards the prosecution stance. And I don't even necessarily think they have to be biased towards the prosecution stance. It just matches. But I'm sure the prosecution is going to keep looking until until they find someone Who's at, whose opinion lines up with what they think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so along that line, there's an expert that took no classes towards his PhD, and he testifies about the occult and says that you can tell if somebody's in the occult because they wear black clothes, they might tattoo themselves, and they like, they like to drink blood and bathe in blood. Okay, wear black clothes and tattoo themselves. I wear all black. I wear all black like every day. I mean, again, different time. Yeah. But oh my God. Like if that's what makes you in a satanic <laughs> cult, I think most of the people I know are in one. Well, especially in the 90s. Like you look at people from the 90s and there are so many goths. Oh yeah, that's like punk rock era. Like, era, yeah. Yeah. Like look at Ozzy Osbourne. Okay, and also, I need to come back to this zero classes towards his PhD. Yeah, what? So this guy's up there, and he's testifying. And the defense attorney comes up, and he goes, is this PhD from a mail-in-degree service? (laughs) And the guy's like, I have a degree in whatever, the occult studies or something like that. And he goes... How many classes did you take towards your PhD between 1982 <laughs> and 1984? And he goes, I think we already covered that. And he goes, how many classes oh, did you God. take? And he goes, did you take zero classes? And he goes, yes. Oh, my God. It's like, what? It's like when you, um, uh, this is so confusing to me. Like, what was going on in the 80s and 90s? Well, how, how was he able? get a degree? Like, how do you just? Well, especially a PhD. Like, I'm thinking about getting a PhD, and I was looking it up, and it's a lot. Mm-hmm. But how was he even allowed on the stand, is my question. Uh, I, don't I don't know. I don't know more, what to say more, like, more outrageous things is that uh, there was a library book 
from Damien Eccles's room that had stuff about Wiccan white witchcraft and black witchcraft and and there are passages that were underlined that references you know the life force of blood and so because he had these underlined passages that means he did a blood ritual and it was those three boys but there's no blood found there so Damien is a very interesting person he is yeah I personally think he's actually was probably more intelligent than a lot of the people he was like so he seems to me to be someone who's like very intelligent and not challenged and in a place where like he did not belong and obviously like that's how he becomes this like strange outcast Damien actually kind of goes through these Phases. So he was really interested in Catholicism for a long time. He changed his name to Damien, like, a while ago. Mm-hmm. And people start spreading this rumor that it's he named himself Damien because of the kid from The Omen. Oh, yeah. But that's not the case. He took the name Damien because of a Catholic priest, oh. Father Damien. Oh, interesting. And... But then he also was, like, researching and interesting in Wicca, mm-hmm. um, which is, like, kind of associated with witchcraft. But I guess it's more so this, I th- like, understanding of, like, life force. And it's, like, a goddess because women bring life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and isn't it more to do with, like, nature? Yes. Yeah. So, but people hear Wicca and they're like, witch. Exactly. And apparently that book where he had underlined underlined references to the life force of blood, he got it used at the library. Okay, so this freaks me out. The fact that it something that was like a used book from the library could implicate you in a crime because I go to the library all the time. Right. And that, that freaks me out. I also do want to play devil's advocate. I mean... We kind of know where this case goes, and we know we were watching the trial, the trial, and we watch, but we're also watching a documentary. Yeah, which documentaries like are made to show you a point of view. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. I um, mean, there were moments from the documentary where I saw him, Damien, and I was like. He's kind of creepy. I mean, he says some weird things. He says some weird things. But if you have to look at it, you have to look at every kind of crime and every trial through the lens of, could this have happened? And every piece of evidence, it just, there was not enough to convict. I don't, I don't think, uh, for me, it's like, not could this have happened? It's, could this not have happened? Yeah, because it's reasonable doubt. So yes, like could could they have killed the boys? Yes, I mean, anyone yes. could have killed no. anybody. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But could they not have? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. More evidence that they're using against Damien. It really is interesting because they they're they're focusing on Damien. It seemed. Oh yeah, no. They and were. Damien testifies. So we mentioned before that there was a woman who testified that she heard Damien say that she 
that he killed the boys or whatever. Another person comes forward also saying that she heard Damon say he killed those boys as he was like walking with a friend. But the defense does a really good job where they come back over and they're like, well, was he close to you? And she says, no. Well, was he screaming that he did this? And she says, no. When did this happen? I don't know. I mean, they poke a lot of holes. And eyewitness testimony is garbage. Yeah. So the trial lasted a month. As you mentioned, Jess, um, it was really heavily focused on Damien with Jason kind of being there as like guilty by association because he was friends with Damien. Um, both, Both of their defense lawyers and attorneys, they were all confident that they were going to be found not guilty. But on March 18th, 1994, the jury comes back with a guilty verdict. Um, both Damien and Jason were found guilty of capital murder for all three boys. Jason was sentenced to life in prison and Damien was sentenced to death by lethal injection because he was 18. And this is where I kind of want us to go through who could have done it, like the possible theories, because everything else that we have on this case is about um, after the Paradise Lost documentary was released, a lot of people came to the defense of the three boys. And eventually, um, through many appeals, and then the boys would put forth um, this thing called an Alfred plea, which basically says that you're like guilty, but... So there's no evidence. So what it actually is, is that an Alfred plea is saying, I am innocent, but I recognize that the prosecution has enough evidence where I could be convicted by a jury. Okay. So basically it's saying you recognize that there's a case against you, but you are innocent. Mm -hmm. Um, So through this, the boys made a deal with... um, the prosecution, so that by making this plea, they would be sentenced to time served, which yeah. was over 18 years. Yeah. Um, and then I believe they were on some kind of probation for 10 years. Um, and if they had violated their probation, they would have gone back. back for 21 years. Yeah. Which is long. And a big thing that people point to is that, you know, when they're looking back at this case, there was DNA at the scene. Mm-hmm. Most of it was from the three little boys. Mm-hmm. Of the other DNA found, none of it was connected to these three defendants. Mm-hmm. Long story short, I don't think they found any conclusive evidence that these three boys didn't do it. Mm-hmm. But they found plenty of evidence suggesting they didn't do it, which in the American Justice. court systems should be enough. Mm-hmm. And so they, in my opinion, they should have never been convicted. Yes, because then... They should be out now. Then as we go along with the theories, like you said, there was DNA collected. But there were many instances where police 
didn't test DNA. Mm -hmm. They didn't test it or they lost it or something. Or they ruined samples. Or they ruined samples. And so, bottom line, this case could have been completely solved, but it wasn't. Maybe. Mm, Yeah. Okay, so who could have done this? Here are some theories. There's about four theories that are pretty substantial, and three of them people really use a lot to show the innocence of the uh, three teenage boys. But one I put in because there's a movie called Devil's Knot with Reese Witherspoon and um, Colin Firth, and it's really, really good. And in it, they mention these two boys, but I didn't see any mention of them in Paradise Lost. But this kind of shows another point about the police, like, not testing DNA and stuff. So these two boys, uh, Chris Morgan and Brian Holland, they were early in the investigation looked at as suspects because they both had drug offense histories and they randomly left for California four days after the bodies were discovered. So without telling anybody that they were leaving with nobody knowing that, like, they had a dream to go to California. These two boys just packed up and left after the bodies were discovered. So weird. Um, Chris Morgan was familiar, or at least casually familiar, with all three of the murdered boys because he was um, previously an ice cream truck driver. And, you know, in the neighborhood, everybody... Knows the ice cream truck driver. Well, we didn't know any ice cream truck drivers. Well, because they didn't come to our neighborhood. (laughs) I know. Tough, tough subject for you. Yes. (laughs) Morgan and Holland were arrested in California on May 17th, 1993. They both took polygraph exams administered by the California police, which, as we know, polygraph exams are false. Like, they don't. They just don't work. Um, both of their charts indicated deception when they denied involvement in the murders, but you can't take that. You, you polygraph exams are just so tricky. During, um, other questioning, Morgan claimed that he had a long history of drug and alcohol use, which caused blackouts and memory lapses. So he might have killed the victims, but then quickly recanted that part of his statement. Okay, so this is why I wanted to mention these two boys. California police, they sent blood and urine samples from Morgan and Holland to the West Memphis Police Department. But there is no record that the West Memphis Police Department investigated Morgan and Holland as suspects after their arrest in California, and they never tested that DNA. Huh. So, like, why not just test it? Do they have good enough samples to test against? They sent them blood and... Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. But wasn't there, like, samples from pants and stuff? Yes, but I... Okay, so this was really interesting that I was listening to recently. Probably on another crime podcast, mm-hmm. but I can't remember which. But sometimes they'll, if they have a very small sample or something, Mm -hmm. they don't want to just test it because then that sample is gone. 
So sometimes they wait until they have like a really better. strong theory or better technology with DNA evidence mm -hmm. so that they can basically use the DNA to its full potential. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Well, so now, I don't know. Now like, they could. Maybe. If maybe. they have enough of That's what, like, I don't know. I don't know enough about DNA yeah, I don't science. Know. So I just thought that these two, you know, if, if I was a jury and I heard about these guys, I'd be like, hmm, okay. A little bit interesting. The other interesting theory that came up, I mean, it's interesting. The same night that the boys went missing, police were sent to respond to an incident at a Bojangles restaurant a mile from where the boys were last seen. And this is more like a... Um, a Bojangles is kind of like a McDonald's yeah. fast food restaurant. Manager at the restaurant said that a black man had come into the Bojangles with mud on his feet and was bloody and disoriented. An officer went through the drive through not the bathroom, and said that she didn't connect the boys missing and this incident. Um, May 6th, they took blood scrapings from the restaurant, but lost them. Yeah. So the manager of the Bojangles, he was really, I, I really liked him a lot. He, he would testify at the trial because he said that the day after the victim's bodies were found, he immediately thought that there could have been a connection to this this man because this guy like stumbled into the was in the lady's bathroom and was super bloody and like really disoriented and muddy and and the creek bed was muddy you know mm -hmm. so he called the police again to come back to the bojangles because the first officer the night before she didn't even walk into the restaurant she didn't even go into the bathroom. She pulled through the drive-thru and was like, oh, is that guy still here? And they're like, no. She's like, oh, okay. And just left. Like, the, what? Um, so, so, yeah. And so then the manager's like, no, they need to look at this. They take blood samples. And then on the stand, the police detective who took the blood scrapings was like, Oh, yeah, I lost those. Three eight-year-old boys I know. have been murdered. How do you just lose them? No. And that what made, that's what makes me mad. It's like the thing that people seem to have forgotten about is the fact that it's like three little boys. And the police were just seemed to be like, oh, it's totally, you know, these satanic cults. Like, all right, let's And once go. they focused in on a suspect, they're like, oh, this is good. Let's make sure everything points to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Terry Hobbs was focused in on by another documentary from 2012 called West of Memphis. Terry Hobbs was Stephen Branch's stepfather. So Terry Hobbs was not interviewed at the time of the original police investigation, which is very confusing. Yeah. So, from everything you see, I mean, they always focus on the people closest to the victims. Yeah. So, when, you know, when a wife is 
murdered, they often look at the spouse first. Yeah. The boyfriends, the friends, the family. I the mean, parents. Exactly. The parents. So that's confusing. Well, also, remember when the um, police officers started the search, the first like little search that night that the boys were reported missing. Neighbors said that they saw the three boys together and saw or heard Terry Hobbs. So it's like he could have possibly been the last people person to see the three boys alive. Exactly. Terry wasn't questioned at all until 14 years after. Yeah, no, that's the crime. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. The West of Memphis pointed at Hobbs as a suspect for a fairly good reason, I would argue, Mm -hmm. which is that one of his hairs was found at the crime scene, and it was genetically matched to him. And it wasn't just found, like, floating around. It was found intertwined in one of the knots. Yeah. That Uh, was hog-tied, tying the boys. And wasn't it on the... Wasn't it on the knots of, uh, like, Christopher Byers? I think so. It wasn't his stepson. So, I mean, if it was found on, like, Stephen's clothing, it's like, okay, okay. that's... I mean, they live together. I mean, my hair's always floating around the house. Yeah. You know? But that is weird that it's, like, in the knot. Yeah. I don't know how much weight this was to it, but from the Devil's Knot movie, okay... At the end. Just to, um, just to remind you, this is a fictional movie. This is a fictional movie. movie. Okay. So, um, Stephen Branch's mother is played by Reese Witherspoon in the movie. And at the end of the movie, she finds Stephen Branch's um, knife. Like, he had a little pocket knife. Oh, this is real life, too. Oh, it's real life, too? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, he finds she finds a little pocket knife of his that he kept with him all the time. So it would be like you, you always have your necklace on. It would be something like that. Um, and she finds it in their trailer, in their home. I think like in in Terry Hobbs's like drawer or something. Yes. Yeah, like she was like putting away laundry and found it. But that I find interesting because she was like, Steven, Stevie would never go anywhere without this pocket knife so why was it a hidden from her and b in his in her husband's clothes which i find very odd especially if you connect it to the hair too because Mm -hmm. steven was not his biological son so it couldn't have been steven's hair Oh, yeah, I mean, this was genetically matched. Yeah, so Terry Hobbs. He's a very interesting. Which leads us to, okay, this is a fascinating character. I don't know if I actually believe that he did it, but he's weird. So this is John Mark Byers. This is Christopher Byers' stepfather, who adopted Chris and whose last name he has. Um, the 1996 Paradise Lost documentary really kind of points the finger at him, but in in kind of a people's like underlined way. Like they're not like, 
ooh, look at this guy. But they're kind of like, look at what this man kind of did sometimes. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And, I mean, the knife. Well, yeah. So, okay. So, John Mark Byers is a, he had a lot of, quote, unquote, bizarre behavior. And, again, you never know how somebody's going to act when they're going through grief. But the interviews that he does is really, really, like, bizarre. So the biggest thing that kind of points people towards Mark Byers, and, and he goes by Mark, is during the trial, as a Christmas gift, three weeks before the Miss Kelly trial was set to begin, he gives the makers of Paradise Lost, so the two documentary guys, a used hunting knife as a gift, right? When they get this gift, they're like, this looks like it has blood on it. So they turn it over to the to the police. Inside of the handle of the gun, I mean the gun, the knife, so not like on the blade, but kind of at the part where like the blade and then the um, handle meet. Yep. So like right there, they find blood. They do find blood. And when they originally ask Mark Byers about the knife, he says, oh, that knife has never been used before. And they're like, well, could you have used it hunting? Could there be animal blood on it? And he's like, no, I've never used it before. Did Christopher ever use this knife? And he's like, used it for what? And they're like, there's blood on the knife. <laughs> and he's like, oh, right, I cut my finger, my thumb on it. And they're like, but you just said that you never used this knife. And he's like, oh, what? No. <laughs> like, he goes on the stand because Jason's defense team puts him on the stand, which was a great move. It didn't help. But... It didn't help, but, like, their their thought process is that he has motive because that day he admits that he um, whipped Christopher with a belt and they're like, oh, it was just on his bottom. No, it was just on his bottom. But still, come on. No. No. There's also, like, I mean, I don't agree at all with any form of capital punishment. Yeah. He will. But there's a difference between spanking your child with your hand. Yeah. And hitting them with a belt. With a belt. And they're like, oh, and he's yeah. like, oh, he had his jeans on. I saw that there was an imprint of the belt buckle. Oh. I found. Oh. Uh, on no. Christopher. Yeah. So, I mean, there's some motive. He is knowledgeable of the area. And something that Jason's defense team points out that I thought was really, you know, kind of pointed to Mark is that he, they don't think that the crime happened at the creek. Nobody really believes that happened. So that means that the person who did it had to be big enough to carry a hogtied eight-year-old boy. And Mark Byers is a big dude. Yeah. Like, he's a big guy. So they say he's big enough. Only his son was mutilated. And I don't think you mentioned this, but the blood that they found on the knife, Mm -hmm. it, they did did a blood test, a blood, what is it called? The blood, they tested the DNA, but only for a type, a blood type. Yeah, blood type, yeah. So this is another thing where I'm like, should they have waited 
I know. Like, could, if they waited, could they have gotten a full DNA profile in it? Yeah. But anyway, they find that the blood is the same blood type as Christopher Byers, but Mark Byers has the same blood type. Yeah. This this they said in the second the second part, um, but Mark Byers later got in trouble. Um, him and his wife moved from their home, and um, they like became friends with another couple who had a kid, and the kid was like over at their house, and he spanked the kid, and I just thought that was weird and then another incident happened where he was um looked at because a teenage boy claimed that buyers and another teenager assaulted him with with a gun well so okay so one teenage boy assaulted another teenage boy with a oh with a knife okay given to him by mark buyers and mark buyers was there when the assault was happening Holding a gun at them. Yeah, weird. So they couldn't leave. Weird. So as if he was like, told this boy to beat up this boy. Yeah, like some, it was weird. Some Something was off. Yeah. So, yeah, something something was off with this. I mean, he, he also said that he was treated for a brain tumor and that he was self-medicating during the time of the interviews, which is why he was being weird. But then you look at, like, years later, you know, the teenager assault and then spanking a neighbor's kid, and it's kind of like... What's going on? What's going on with you? And I just, I can't get over the fact <laughs> with the knife. What, what was the knife used for? And on the stand, he goes, used for what? Like, used for... What? Like, what would it have been used? Mark Byer says that. I know. And it's like, anything. Used for anything. I just genuinely don't know what happened to the boys. Yeah. And this is like a, a really quick overview of the case. If you want more, I mean, I would suggest looking at the Paradise Lost documentaries. Look at them at your own discretion, though, because they do show the... Crime scene photos. Yes. And we will also post all of our online resources. Yeah. And you can just go down a hole. I mean, we have, what do we have? Eight <laughs> pages of notes here. Yeah. And we had to, like, Whoa, cut things yeah. down so that. For timing. So we can provide a. Yeah. Manageable. Manageable amount of time. Ten um, pages. Yeah. So. So. Uh, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly, um, they are all out of prison right now. However, legally, those three names are still legally responsible for the murders of uh, Stephen Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. Um, no one else has been charged with the killings since the West Memphis Three were released from prison and uh, 2011, and it's been 25 years now since the murders. Now, um, Damien Eccles is an artist, movie producer, and author. He has done a lot of interviews about this case, too, so you can go on YouTube and, and find a lot. Um, he moved to New York, and he married um, a woman who advocated for him after seeing the HBO documentaries. 
He has written a memoir, so you can look that up. But we'll post it as well. He wrote that in prison. In prison? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And he tours the country as a successful artist and writer. And he works on behalf of other wrongly convicted people, specifically um, Stephen Avery from Netflix, Making a Murderer. Have you watched that? I haven't, but I, I have read about it. I watched part of it. And... Don't know why I stopped, but... Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, watching False Confessions really... It's one of those things that, like, I can't do. Like, it really bothers me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know. Yeah. Jason Baldwin um, has also been involved in movie production. Like Morgan mentioned, he um, helped on Devil's Knot. And he has been working towards a career in law to help others wrongly convicted. He is married and lives in Seattle. And he gave a first-hand account of his story to Mara Leverett for her book, Dark Spell, Surviving the Sentence. Probably. I'm so sure. Mara Leverett, she was in the second Paradise Lost. She was the uh, first and only, I think they said the first and only journalist from Arkansas who... Um, wrote about the inconsistencies in the case. And and she's interviewing the people who were, um, I forget what the group was called, but there was a group that that sprung up who were all there to, like, help the West Memphis Three. Both Damien and Jason got degrees while in prison, actually. Jesse Misfilly has stayed out of the limelight since he was released, and he's been working and living not far from where this all happened. So it seems like he might have just gone home. And I read um, that he got back together with his high school sweetheart, actually. Who was in the Paradise Lost uh, documentary. She was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which really nice. All right. Our organization spotlight for this week is the Innocence Project, which I think a lot of people have heard of, but they do an incredible job. The Innocence Project was founded in 1992, working to exonerate the wrongly convicted through DNA testing and by reforming the criminal justice system to prevent future injustices. The Innocence Project's mission is to free the staggering number of innocent people who remain incarcerated, and to bring reform to the system responsible for their unjust imprisonment. If you'd like to learn more about the Innocence Project, we will be um, posting them up on our website, suspicion.com, but you can also go to their website at um, www.innocenceproject.org. Thank you for listening to our... (sighs) comeback episode everyone and i hope you enjoy the rest of season two as it comes out follow along with updates on our instagram page and our facebook page at suspicion like we mentioned all resources um all organization spotlights and a lot more information goes on our website suspicion.com if you are listening on um, apple Podcasts, please rate and review mm-hmm. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening listening, and thanks for hanging in there as we had our little break. And stay suspicious. Come on, season two. <laughs> no. <laughs>